Welcome to Ascend and Transcend. On today's show, we have Kirsten Parsons-Hathcock. She is the author of Little Voices, How Kids in Spirit Helped a Reluctant Medium Escape and Heal from Abuse. She's incredible. She has this whole other side. She wasn't born a medium. It was something that came in later in life. We talked about that on the show, how these children started coming through to help her solve um, missing persons in cold case um, homicide cases. She works with law enforcement. So it's really cool, but she's also this like incredible professional entrepreneur who started designing children's furniture and was featured on Shark Tank. Um, so it was really interesting to have a conversation with her on how to tap into our own intuition. Should we trust, you know, voices kind of that come through? What's the difference between a voice and a thought? And just overall, her super interesting story that she highlights in her forthcoming book. So hope you enjoy today's show. And I know I did. I love talking with her. Welcome everyone to Ascend and Transcend. Kirsten, I am so excited to have you on for this conversation today. This is like the ultimate insight, I think, to what happens when we leave these physical bodies and how we can still communicate with people who have left and feel their presence and that they're always trying to guide us and support us here on earth. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Elizabeth, thank you so much for having me. I couldn't be more excited to chat with you about all of this. Yeah. Well, I know all about you because, you know, I did some research, but I would love for you to listen, um, to be able to share with our listeners a little bit about your backstory because it is pretty extensive. There are some plot twists along <laughs> your journey to bringing Little Voice, which is out on the 20th, September 20th. Everybody go pre-order. She's got some fun little giveaways and stuff too if you pre-order. But tell us how it came to be. Um, by way of your background? Sure. So I, I grew up in Ohio. My dad's a football coach. My mom was a teacher. And, um, you know, I had this amazingly, what I thought, splendid childhood. You know, my parents are wonderful. I grew up with Midwestern values, which meant I didn't believe in anything truly that was supernatural. I had... I, I had no experience with any of it that I remembered. So that was my, you know, very grounded kind of upbringing. And after that, I ended up going into training in ed and then went into advertising sales for A&E and the History Channel. So I was in the TV side of things for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then weirdly, my, you know, my life has taken a lot of turns, but one of the turns I chose was to become a self-taught carpenter and furniture designer. And I did that when we moved to Los Angeles because we had two little ones at home. And I just thought, you know, I don't want to go through the whole daycare thing again. I want to spend more time with them. What can I do from home? So I taught myself how to design and build kids' furniture out of our garage. And I did that for about four years before I went on the show Shark Tank. And I've been able to expand that business, gosh, tenfold, I guess, internationally. So that's been pretty amazing. It's still going. I started it in 2007 and it is known internationally. So that's kind of my, you know, business bio. Um, but to, you know, the, to go back to the grounded childhood, like I said, I didn't believe in anything that was supernatural. I didn't believe in mediumship by any means. I kind of thought it was all bull. And uh, until it hit me over the head when I turned 36. So out of nowhere, I started seeing and hearing mostly children who were in spirit. And, you know, my first reaction was I have been breathing way too much polyurethane in the garage. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Our rational brain is quick to dismiss it, isn't it? Absolutely. And I kept wanting to dismiss it no matter how you know, how hit over the head I was getting with it. 
But eventually it ended up leading to partnerships with law enforcement and working on some cold cases and, you know, kind of that that kind of takes us into little voices and gives sort of the foundation of the book. So these kids were victims and they were trying to guide you to bring some sort of justice to their perpetrators or what were they, how did, like, what was your first encounter with one of those spirits? So in the beginning, it wasn't, it wasn't children who had been killed by pedophiles. That kind of came about a year into channeling and understanding that I wasn't losing my mind. The first kids, the first child that I actually do talk about quite a bit in the book, who's still with me today, his name is Nate. And Nate died of what's called an AVM, which is a brain bleed when he was 13. And uh, Nate was coming through to me while I was reading Facebook, of all things. No way. Yeah. (laughs) And I I know. (laughs) And I knew his parents because we went to high school together, but they were a couple years older. They were this cute little high school couple, you know, ended up getting married, had kids. So I was friends with them on Facebook, but I really didn't know them. And so sure enough, Nate comes through to me and I'm seeing him and I'm hearing him and I'm thinking, this is crazy, but I'm going to go ahead and just write this stuff down just in case it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not my imagination. So, so that's what I did. And then I put those notes away for probably two days because I was terrified because he kept asking me, can you please share these messages with my parents? Was it in his voice or did it come through as a thought you had? Came through in his voice. And I know it, it differs depending on who's coming through because sometimes I do hear it more in my voice. But for him, it was his voice, his intonation, his sense of humor, all of that. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever ask him why me? I, I did, but there was really no clear answer. It was mm-hmm. really interesting. I, you know, I, I had had a few instances prior to Nate where I was starting to recognize it as truth. And so I, you know, I, I was leaning into it, I guess, at that, at that point of knowing that this was actually real. And I just figured, I think in my head, well, he knows me and I can get to his parents. And so that was what I naturally thought, you know, when he was. And so you finally shared with his parents. I did. I did. So I, two days later, I, I just kind of told myself, listen, you know, you should feel it. Like if it's the right thing to do, you'll feel it. And maybe you'll feel kind of a calm sense about it. Cause I was pretty terrified, to be honest. I didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt them. I didn't want to become the laughing stock of my entire hometown. I didn't want it to reflect poorly on my parents who still live in Defiance, Ohio. So there was a lot to consider. So I, I was in the garage building a toy box and all of a sudden I just felt this calm peace come over me. And it felt like, you know, it's time. That, but that was it. It's time. So I ended up reaching out to Denise, is Nate's mom's name. And I reached out to her on Messenger inside of Facebook. And she was thrilled and absolutely wanted to talk to me. Her husband, however, was not quite as thrilled, I don't think. I think he was trying to figure out, okay, what's the angle here? Right. How am I going to end up paying for this? Yeah. Absolutely. Like, is there, are you going to charge me now to speak to right. my son or, yeah. 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 And, you know, I, I, it took a little convincing, but they also knew my parents and they're very well-respected people. And I think there was some faith in there, but also there were all these messages that they couldn't figure out how I would know this stuff because it's all private stuff that you can't Google. And that's how it works for me. They give me very, very detailed evidential type messages. And uh, yeah, I was just, I was pretty much blown away that A, that what I was getting was actually correct. Yeah. And then shortly after uh, about a month or so, 
after that, I ended up reaching out to them and saying, listen, I'm going to come into town to visit my parents. Do you, you know, how do you feel about me popping in and chatting with you? Because there were more messages coming in. And they said, yes, please. (laughs) So I ended up going to their house and sat with them for a long time. And what was really interesting is, you know, we didn't talk about a lot of that after it happened. Like, you know, I knew that it resonated with them. They hugged me. They thanked me. They understood that there was nothing on my end. There was no agenda. I was literally just trying to do what their son was asking me to do. And so that was a beautiful thing. But about three years later, I think it was three years later, I asked John if he could write up what that experience was like. Now, John is Nate's dad, and he was the one who was kind of skeptical. I had no idea that what I shared individually with them and also their younger son um, had shaped a lot their lives the way it did. And I'm, what I mean is that they were all kind of, you know, they're in the depths of grief and they were splintering and they were not talking to one another. And, and sure enough, John just said, you know, this has given us our family back and we see the signs and we look, we see that there are no coincidences and we see that, you know, Nate opens and shuts doors in their house and he leaves coins and yeah, it's pretty amazing, pretty amazing stuff. I mean, we were kind of talking about it before we started recording, and it's something that I always say to clients and listeners who is like, what's the harm in believing this? I think, to your point, people want to, skeptics want to go to like, well, what's the angle here, right? Like, what? how is this somehow going to benefit this other person and cost me, whether it's financially or emotionally or whatever? But I think that the people who are kind of tapped to be mediums or psychics or intuitives or, you know, are typically reluctant. (laughs) They don't (laughs) like seek this out. You know, you're not sitting here trying to harness this ability. A lot of times it's, they choose the most skeptical people they can find because they know that it's got to come from that place, not this person with 8 million dream catchers hanging around them. Like it's got (laughs) to come from somebody serious and professional and a business owner and an entrepreneur and all of this stuff. But I think it's really interesting that you're making children's furniture and then the children, you know, are the ones that come through. Do you feel like there was a connection in that? Like maybe even your entrepreneurial spirit was connected to this other realm? Absolutely. And I even talk about that in the book. Absolutely. I had to be told that, which was interesting because I did end up talking to a medium early on, even before I started channeling. And she said, you know, you're here to help millions of kids. And I started laughing because I thought, well, I'm making high-end kids furniture in my garage. <laughs> like That doesn't really feel like helping kids to me. But she said, look at this, Kirsten, look what you've done. You've created a business around children. You left your you know, corporate job to be home with your kids. Everything that I have done, you know, unbeknownst to me, I didn't even connect all those dots I was doing for kids. And the innocence, like the innocence of kids, like a toy box, you know, or a little chair that they can feel like is just for them, you know? It's it is that peace, that adolescence and that sweet safety and you know that all little ones have that vulnerability and being supportive of that, which is exactly what a lot of the spirits that channel through you needed. Yes. You know, and and so I really thought, okay, well, maybe they're coming to me because I'm a goofy mom and okay, I'll do what they, you know, I'm a doer, <laughs> clearly. So I'm going to do what they're asking me to do. I had no idea they were actually coming to help save my own life, which was, you know, that was the twist in all of this. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. 
So, you know, as I'm going through all of this, I had been channeling for about two years. I had made connections and created partnerships with cops around the country. And I was getting a lot of validation. I was kind of still doing it very, very quietly because, first of all, it's easier to be the woman who won a deal on Shark Tank and builds kids' furniture than it is to be someone who talks to the other side. So I didn't want it to hurt me or my business or my family or any of that. So I was kind of scared, honestly. But I got to a point where I thought, okay, I need I need to do this because they're coming in more and more and I need to be more vocal about it and just say, just own it. Like, hey, listen, I'm a carpenter. I'm a designer. I'm a mom. Also, I can talk to the dead. So I just sort of added it as another piece. At that point, I did not understand why I was seeing a pattern of children who were coming to me who had been killed by pedophiles. And that it was stronger and stronger and stronger. More children were coming in. I'm thinking, okay, still, why me? I don't get this. Until one day, this was in 2013. Sorry, I'm thinking, wait, 2012, I think. I was, I was basically, no, I'm sorry, 2014. I was having visions of myself as at a very young age. And they were the same types of visions I would get, you know, when it's related to a child murder case. But instead of seeing another child, I was seeing me. So I'm seeing me and I'm thinking, wait, that's got to be wrong. That's got to be wrong. Why am I seeing me? I don't get this. So it took a little while. And finally, I was able to see more and more and started to understand that, oh, my God, they're coming to me because I'm in their club. I, too, was sexually abused as a child by a distant uncle. And I had no memory of it. So it's just a repressed memory that was buried yeah. in your subconscious. Wow. Yes. And that's another thing I didn't believe in, you know? <laughs> so, so you know, you throw all of this stuff in, in a big barrel and it's a lot of overcoming disbelief. And I, you know, I ended up digging deep and I ended up kind of going back in time and looking at my life and thinking, wow, I am really modest. That's weird. The first time I was intimate, I remember with a, a boy or a man, I was, I was just like I just laid there. I had to have vaginal surgery when I was 19. And unbeknownst to me, you know, I, I'm thinking it's something that was congenital, but it was actually scar tissue. Oh my God, Kirsten. I know. I know. Do so you I feel like too sometimes when you just have like an off feeling, like there, you know, I'm not going to call out family members, but I think right. that there are some people that you just really get repelled by. And I yes. always wonder, and they've been, you know, they had access to you when you were really little and you always, you can't put your finger on it, but you're like, I don't want to be in a room with that person. And I don't want to mm-hmm. hug that person. And I don't even want them looking at me and you can't really identify what it is. Yes, absolutely. And you know, we like, we as a society, right? We like to we like to play casting couch, right? We're like, oh, that guy looks creepy. He's got to be a pedophile. When what I found have found in casework and also in my own life is he was actually very charming. He was good looking, very, very charming. You know, he was somebody that no one suspected that he was doing this. And I was not the only child. So, you know, that was, yeah. So that was shocking to learn that about myself. But what was equally shocking was that I would go down this rabbit hole after 18 years of my marriage. And, you know, that that's detailed in the book. And we we went through stuff that everybody goes through in a marriage, although it was sort of on crack in a way because we had seven layoffs during our marriage. Yeah. I mean, just such That'll hardship. put you through the ringer. Yep. Yeah. 
And then as I became more intuitive, I noticed that my husband kept reaching out to me, you know, leaning on me. So it was almost like it tipped the scales. Not only were we in this financial deficit, but it tipped the scales where I'm now thinking, okay, it's like I have three kids. So I end up in the worst position of my life. I lost a job, a spokesperson job. I lost a licensing deal. We were projecting $5 million in sales that year. I, I was at the lowest point of my life when in walks a sociopathic predator, and I did not know that he was a sociopathic predator, and yeah, fell head over heels for him, head over heels. Yep. And I spent three years in an abusive relationship. And, you know, that was what, that's why I wrote the book, because during that time period, those same kids that were coming to me in spirit started coming to me to give me messages. And at first they were saying, this isn't what it seems. And I was like, what? No, this seems great. He's amazing. Like he, everything, you know, he loves that I do mediumship work. He loves all of this stuff. And, and then over time, as the abuse started to ramp up and, and got, much worse. I ended up, you know, hearing from them quite a bit. You need to go get the restraining order now. You need to have the cops call him now. So these kids that came to me for me to help, you know, pass messages to their parents and get justice were turning it around and actually saving my life and helping me climb out of this abusive relationship with, you know, who I came to learn was actually considered a pedophile. So it was pretty full circle. I mean, and it's just so incredible. Like, it's awful that you endured that. And, but if we're looking for a silver lining here, I mean, not only do we have little voices coming out and you also wrote, oh, wait, is this, this is your first, right? Yeah. But this includes the domestic. Yeah. This includes the, the story of the yeah. domestic abuse. Yeah. I think too, like a big piece of this, if now it's just pretty ironclad <laughs> that mm-hmm. if you weren't a believer before, right, yes. that there is like... There are non-physical beings who are always guiding us. And I feel like we can let their voices be as loud as we want them to be. And I always, you know, kind of joke, like I started seeing things too. Like you said, Nate's parents would see things or he'd open the doors and my listeners know, you know, I've got these flashing lights in my bedroom and I literally can carry on a conversation with the spirits in there and they will stop the light. They will start it. I love they will it. Stop that. I mean, I'm like, okay. And even when things come out, like we're both, you know, new authors, your book is coming out on the 20th. Right. Mine is coming out on the 13th. And I Yay. know, but I, you know, you have these moments. I'm sure you felt this resistance of like, is this a huge mistake? <laughs> you know, are people yes. going to think I'm crazy? Mm-hmm. And there are certain things that are very you know, private that I included in there. It's like publishing your diary on some level. And I've been having this, you know, high level of anxiety, like, oh my God, this feels like a speeding train is headed right for me. And then it's in those moments that my guides and the non-physical energy just really ramp it up and they show their support. And I think that if you want to buy into it, right, if you want to believe, because there is no downside, remember, right? then you can ask for things and you can listen to that. I mean, thank goodness they were loud enough that you finally were able to really receive and act on the advice that they were sending. Yes. And how crazy is it? Because I, you know, I was channeling them for two years before I met him. Tony is his name. And I, had I not had that experience and been working with cops and, and getting validation, I would not have trusted the visions I was getting from my own repressed memories. 
So, you know, the timing of it all is just unbelievably incredible, let alone just the way that it all was orchestrated. And one of the kids in spirit named Jason, he came in, he he came in quite a bit trying to help me get out. And I broke up with with Tony seven times, or we broke wow. up seven times before I was able to, you know, actually get out of the relationship. And that's a pretty common statistic. Even for, you know, somebody, I, I'm a smart, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for myself. I have, you know, I'm a very much a go-getter type person and I fell into this, right? Right. Oh, yeah. But they're groomer. I mean, they, they this is they like, groomed. yeah, this is like the, what they do. And so- yeah. I think that it can be, you know, this shame closet if you want to like lock yourself in there. I had sexual abuse in high school and I could blame myself and I could say, you know what? I shouldn't have been drunk at that party. I shouldn't have put myself in a situation like that. But at the end of the day, it's like these people who do it multiple times, especially, right? Like, well, I guess it doesn't even matter if it's multiple or one. It's all equally awful. But I think that is where the power comes in when it's like we can share these stories and say, you know what, I didn't do anything to provoke that. And I wasn't, you know, somebody who overlooked things to date Tony. He, This is what they do. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I'm so sorry, first of all, that you went through that. And I understand that shame. And it's really, that's a really tough thing. And that is one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I felt like, you know what, I just need, I I know I'm not the only one. I, I hear from people constantly on both sides, on the spirituality side, people are ashamed to kind of talk about it or believe in it. And then also on the abuse side. And, you know, my book just happens to kind of put both of those together. And that's why it's so special. Like that's what I loved about it too, was that it really does address both of those in in one book. And it's like, you know, it definitely like grabs your attention. And, (laughs) you know, to think about this, I think everybody's always a little bit curious about, Mm -hmm. you know, law enforcement working with mediums and like how often do they really attribute closing a case to that? Does it get as much love as it should? Things like that. But I got to say, if law enforcement is, you know, uh, believing it enough, then clearly there's something there. Yes, yes. You know, and I'm really lucky. There are a few cops I work with that I don't talk about publicly for their own safety and and because they don't, you know, they're not comfortable with that. Mark Pucci is a retired, very highly decorated retired NYPD cop who has also been a detective just on the private side for a while. And he and I met in 2014 on a missing persons murder case in New York City. And uh, he he was amazing because he actually helped me even more because he believed in me and the information I gave him saved his life. And he's open about that. He taught, we were just doing a little interview together the other day and, and he detailed how that all went down and how his life was saved that day. Can you give us the cliff notes? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So we were working on this case, a missing person. I knew that the man had crossed over. He was he was no longer in his body anymore. And he was giving me location specifics. And he was also giving me perpetrator specifics. So I was able to pass all that information on. Mark is very much, you know, like I said, he's a very grounded person, but he also believes in intuition. But he does his homework. So he did a ton of boots on the ground research and everything I had given him without any knowledge of the case or a way to even you know, look at that stuff because it's not really out there. I gave that to him and it all lined up. 
So he went out to this particular location and uh, sure enough, once he gets out there, it's exactly how I described the location would look. And it also, you know, I was warning him about a specific character that I knew, you know, I was getting warned that this guy, that, that Mark could end up dead too, to put it bluntly. So he gets out there and sure enough, that particular guy is there. <gasps> yeah. And so he was, you know, down to the down to the accent and all of it. Wow. And Mark said that, you know, had it not been for my warning, he wouldn't have even known to posture the way he did because the guy was about to get out of the car and he was making all of the sudden moves that that said, you know what, I'm about to pull a gun on you. And and that was exactly what was happening. And then Mark was able to then show him his gun and his badge and he backed off. But this, it could have been a very, very, very different ending to that day. Wow. And you and Mark went as far as to create a nonprofit. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the National Institute for Law and Justice? Yes, absolutely. So this is kind of a cool story. So, you know, Mark and I worked together since 2014. And during the abuse years, I we didn't work together as much because I was basically covered up in, you know, all of that abuse stuff. So about a year, November of last year, he calls me up. And he doesn't call much. We text a lot. So I knew something was up. And he said, Kirsten, it's time. He said, do you remember back in 2014 when you told me that we were going to be working on something bigger, like under a larger umbrella? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Because Spirit was telling me that. Yep. He said, it's time. Let's do this. I want to co-found with you the National Institute for Law and Justice, where we are going to help families of crime victims, and we're going to do it at no cost to the families. Because what happens, you know, he's brought in on a lot of cases, and unfortunately, the families have to pay for it, or he works pro bono quite a bit too. And I don't charge for my services. I never have. It's just not you know, I, I don't consider myself a medium by trade. So, so you know, we find ourselves in these positions of doing a lot of work pro bono too. So we said, you know what, this is not right. Cold cases go cold very, very quickly. And the minute that happens, these families have to, you know, go into their pocketbooks and pay out a ton of money to try and- Or just live with that open wound, right? <laughs> like for the rest of their lives. It's insane. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes they go from detective to detective. So we thought, well, why not Why not create this nonprofit? It's a 501, 501c3. So donations are tax de- deductible and all that jazz. But why not do this? And that way we can help on a much larger scale. So we're essentially doing what we've always been doing. But now, because we have an entire network of detectives. We have folks coming on board that were, you know, the top cold case detectives from NYPD. We have CSI detectives. We have cadaver dogs. We we literally have kind of everything we need. And now with a bigger network, we're able to help more people. I love that. I mean, to be able to find a way to turn it around and expand the amount of support that you can get. And I mean, it's priceless what you can give a family back when you give them answers. And I think that a lot of people could exploit that. And the fact that you guys are doing it in such a, you know, well-intentioned space, it's got to make the spirits happy. (laughs) And I think (laughs) they're very happy (laughs) when you do that stuff, right? Like you said, you're not a medium by trade, but like, I think that that has no choice, but to reverberate then back onto your more professional side, right? Like that good karma will overflow into other spaces. It doesn't have to come from that. 
Right. I know. I agree with you. And, you know, in some cases, because I did come out and I was open about this, you know, it, it hasn't done good things for my business. <laughs> you know, I have had, I've absolutely had doors shut because of it. But on a whole, you know, I, I, I was just interviewed the other day and she's, you know, basically was asking me, well, how do you see this affecting your own business? And I said, it's, it's not something I can quantify, honestly. And I don't, I don't need to. I'm okay with that because it just transcends anything that would be on a spreadsheet. You know, it just does. We're talking about lives and pain and justice. And I think that's a massive thing. And the, I, my hunch is too, if you did try to resist it, they would just get louder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know that they're going to leave you alone anyway. Cause once they have a good one, you know, who really does have the intention and has lived through things to really understand the impact that it can have. I don't think they're going to quiet down for you anytime soon. No, they're not. And they did say that. They said, <laughs> you know, it's time and they're lining up. And so a lot of, a lot of cool stuff is happening. A lot of different cases that, you know, I never thought I would be a part of are opening up and, you know, we're, we're just really hopeful that we can help however we can. We'll take notes for the next book then. I will. I promise. <laughs> yeah. Pick up Little Voices, How Kids in Spirit Helped a Reluctant Medium Escape and Heal from Abuse. I've already pre-ordered my copy. I'm super excited. I think that this is going to be a read that's going to be hard to put down and no doubt the first of many. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Kirsten. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for having me. I have loved it. Loved every second of it. Thank you. <laughs>